I'm Nicole Matthews, corporate America dropout turned entrepreneur and owner of The Henley Company, an event travel and lifestyle management firm. It wasn't that long ago that I was dreading my drive to my fancy corporate job each day or felt disenfranchised with the work I was doing. In 2007, I jumped off the corporate escalator and directly into the elevator of opportunity. Today, I'm an author, speaker, educator, and serial asker. I wholeheartedly believe that your life changes when you start creating your own opportunities and making big asks. Hands down, the business and life I have today is 100% the product of giving myself permission to design the life I want to live. It was always my dream to work at the Olympics, and by making a big ask, that dream became a reality. I now have multiple Olympic projects to add to my life resume. I created the Big Ask Podcast to share these best practices with you. Whether you're an entrepreneur hungry for revenue-generating tips or an individual restless to make a significant change, the life you want to live could be just one big ask away. Get ready to be entertained by real life stories, no filter conversations, and inspired by the daily hustle. So let's get started. This is the Big Ass Podcast. Welcome back to the Big Ass Podcast. I'm Nicole Matthews. We are in for a great conversation today um, with a longtime friend of mine and, and industry colleague, um, Allison Andrews Cantor, who, um, if you know the saying, if you want to get anything done, give it to a busy person. Um, Allison is like the epitome of give it to a busy person and she will make every, all the magic happen. So let me just go through a few of the titles that you hold. Okay. Founder and director of Fashion Week San Diego, president of Cantor Creative Group partner in cleaner coops, right? Now you're a new author and you're a super proud mama. Did I miss anything? No, you got it. That was perfect. Oh oh my gosh. Well, Allison, thank you so much for being a guest on the Big Ass Podcast. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you, Nicole. It's so fun to chat with you on this side of the fence. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. So you have had quite a year um, and not only have you started two companies, Cantor Creative Group and then your Cleaner Coops, um, you continue to foster Fashion Week San Diego. You've written a book and you have a third baby on the way here in just a few short weeks. Did I miss anything? Nope. You got that too. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about yourself though. Tell us um, kind of professionally speaking, who is Allison? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's very diverse. And I think that's part of what keeps me excited about myself actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm constantly evolving. I'm trying not to stagnate and I love continual growth and I definitely practice what I preach in that, especially in my career path. But I started my first business at 20, a consulting business called APA Consulting. It was literally was my initials because I did not know what to call myself. <laughs> And I only went and filed a DBA because my mom freaked me out about taxes and getting paid under the table. So thanks mom for that. Cause that started that <laughs> whole thing. Um, and I did that for about 15 years. And during that time, I also launched fashion week San Diego, um, which has been one of my biggest passion projects, something I'm very proud about in my career started from nothing and people saying there's no way you can have a fashion week in San Diego to being one of the largest independently owned and operated fashion weeks in the world and mm. the world's only binational fashion week recognized by the industry. And we're one of the only independently owned and operated fashion weeks of the world that has the industry stamp of approval and produces what it's supposed to do and produces that caliber of event at a level that they deem worthy. So wow. again, really proud of that. Um, it's not been easy. I would say the first eight years was a constant no <laughs> and um, really just proving and constantly staying consistent and not giving up and just waiting for tides to change. And people finally accept that we weren't going anywhere, that we were serious, that we were a competitor and we were in it for the long haul, not just to be like, you know, this frivolous fashion event, just to make some money and be the cool kids on the block. And, mm-hmm. you know, we finally have gotten over that and, um, It's been great. Uh, My son, my second child, when he was born, uh, unfortunately, at seven days old, had flesh eating disease of his umbilicus, his abdomen. So I had to literally pull the e-brake on my whole life. So I ended up closing my consulting business and I ended up selling um, pretty much all of Fashion Week. I, I retained a little, but to our new director, Glenn Bates, who has been amazing captain of that ship and at the helm. And I, I'm so happy uh, 
that it worked out because she really has been the best fit. And I cannot, I'm just so happy with her. And she's yeah. just picking on everything with such grace and she's very admirable. And we learn a lot from each other and we're a nice compliment, which is wonderful for keeping that business evolving and growing with a different set of eyes and, and a voice. Right. And it's yeah. been really fun uh, to actually finally have a partner in that too. So I've been enjoying that. Uh, but during that time I took about two years off and it was just to basically make sure he had a full recovery, really assess my life, where I was at. There's nothing like being at death's doorstep for every day for three months. <laughs> and especially mm-hmm. through your child, which is, I think, more mm-hmm. painful than even yourself. I would have traded myself daily with him hour, on the hour mm-hmm. if I could um, to really make you... Uh, sit back and assess your life Mm -hmm. and assess what really matters, what you're doing, how you're spending your time, what you're doing with your money. I mean, everything was on the chopping block for me, at least Mm -hmm. I took a full life inventory and I purged hard. And one of those things for me, which I struggled with, and it took me a long time to get to grips with it because it was one of the things I never wanted to fail at more than anything. I would take risks in business over this, but I wanted to be one of those that got married and stayed married. And unfortunately, um, in this time of crisis and trauma and evaluation of where I was in my life, that just kept being the one thing that really stood out to me that needed the Mm -hmm. most change. So Mm -hmm. as soon as my son was uh, released from Rady's Children's Hospital and we could go home, within two months, I filed for divorce and moved out. Wow. So I had two kids, one that had um, major medical issues still and mm-hmm. had wound care that I was doing. I mean, it was pretty intense. Uh, yeah. We were not, we were not clear, you know, we were still right. in the trenches. I was still going back to Brady's outpatient about once a week for mm-hmm. another six to nine months. Um, yeah. So it was a solid two years, but anyways, I, um, I started this whole new adventure. I had a healthy kid that survived. I had my daughter and I was basically starting my life almost over again. Um, totally different hats, you know, it, it's, it was like a whole 360 do-over. Yeah, so amazing. I, I took the time and I was fortunate enough and calculated enough, I guess you could say, that I knew I could take about a year and a half off with no pressure to just reset, heal, let my kids heal, let us Mm -hmm. all heal and just Mm -hmm. get into a really good place. Yeah. And that was such a gift. Oh my God, that was such a gift. But during that time, one of the things I did was I wrote that book and I wrote my book and it was important to me to write a book. And I always wanted to be an author. I have great respect for authors. I'm a voracious reader. Uh, To me, I find when people say they're an author, that is like the creme de la creme, like that impresses (laughs) me. And I know a lot of pretty cool people, but when you say you're an author, if you published work or you're a writer, that to me is just, I have such respect. I don't, it's just something inside me that I just go, wow, oh my gosh. And it doesn't matter what the topic is, their expertise, their background. I'm just always really um, impressed. It impresses Mm -hmm. me. So it's always been kind of one of those things, like I wanted to write a book. I wanted to be an author. I just never knew what it would be on and nothing ever made sense or connected or um, Mm. felt authentic, right? Like I could have written about fashion week. I could have written about business, but that wasn't, that was not the book I wanted to write. I didn't want to write like a scholarly work piece. I wanted Mm -hmm. something, I don't know what I wanted, but anyways, after living through what I lived through, I had all this content. I had all these thoughts and opinions and ideas. And I felt like there was none of that when I needed it, when I was kind of toiling with the idea of like changing my life, getting a divorce, Mm -hmm. what that looks like as a mom of literally a couple month old baby and a toddler and career. And what do you do? You know, like my whole life was a facade. It felt like, how do you Mm -hmm. even navigate that? Um, How do you even admit that? That's like the first step. How do you even admit Mm -hmm. it? Right. It's a very vulnerable space. And there was nothing out there. I mean, it was like, how to get a divorce 101 for dummies. No, thank you. That's not what I need. You know, like, yeah. I want to hear a woman who's like me that I recognize myself and tell me what it was like for her. And there wasn't a lot out there. Um, so I was very motivated and I wrote this book in less than six weeks with my coach. Mm-hmm. It just 
flooded out of me. I know you did the same yep. thing. Mm-hmm. We have very similar trajectories as far as our writing style or yep. getting the content out. For me, the hardest part was actually doing all the editing. I dragged my butt big time and my <laughs> book coach kept like smacking me on the wrist because I just, I had the hardest time editing, but getting the content out just flew mm-hmm. out of me. Yep. Um, and it was very cathartic. It was healing. Sometimes it was actually more traumatic than actually when I was living it because then I had to reprocess it. Mm-hmm. But again, still proud of the healing process. I think. Um, so yeah, wrote the book and then reemerged. That's the best way I can say it. I reemerged, relaunched my consulting business, rebranded it with my married last name, which is a little comical. There's a little irony there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously still invested very much with fashion week. And now that the pandemic has slowed down a little bit and we're able to do events again, that's picking up steam again, which is fantastic and feels very, very good mm-hmm. to be back doing something that, you know, you feel good about and you're proficient. Everybody likes that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good little ego boost. So that that's making me feel good. And I love my yeah. team and it's like our own little family there. And then, um, got kind of wild with this idea to, uh, start this business with my neighbor. Who's also one of my really good friends, uh, cleaning chicken coops because <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> it is wild. And it's the funniest thing. And it's a crack up because it's totally a passion project. That's a true passion project. I love animals. I, if you, anyone were to ask me, what did you want to be as a kid? Or what did you want to be that you didn't do? I would say working with animals, a vet, a horse yeah. trainer, I mean, a dolphin yeah. trainer, you name it. Right. Right. I love animals. It just, I've always had them. I just didn't make my money doing it. So it's kind of fun that now I have a business that is working with chicken. Yeah. Okay. So cleaner coops, let's talk about that. That's a crazy business idea. So that started with a, with a neighbor partner of yours. Yeah. So my neighbor in the new area I'm living in my new life, we became very close and I, she has a pet sitting business. And when I found out I was pregnant with my third, it became very clear to me that I was going to need assistance cleaning my coops um, or my coop. And there's nothing out there. And the service that I did find that was out there was not going to fit my needs or my expectation level of what I needed. It just wasn't a fit. So there was a huge hole in this industry and this, and there had to be other moms and other women like me, especially Mm -hmm. now that people are getting back to work and maybe they did homesteading during COVID and the pandemic, but now they're going back to work or their kids are going to school. They maybe can't take care of these chickens they got into, right? (laughs) And it happens to the best of us. How many of us have, you know, gone and got the goldfish and got the guinea and then we realized why'd we do this to ourselves, you know? So, uh, I threw it at her and she loved it. So we partnered up and we did it and we've actually been very successful. It is like the funnest business in the planet. There is no stress. Our customers are absolutely delightful. Um, and the funniest thing, and I don't know if this is too much for your listeners, but I I love the fact that if this business becomes like the biggest business out of all the ones that <laughs> like sweat and tears cried over and built and invested hundreds of thousand dollars in, you know, this one, uh, you know, how'd you make your money? Oh, picking up shit, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> like the fashion girl goes to chicken poop, you know, it's, right. it's fun and it's, it's just fun. It's easy. Um, my kids can come with me. That's the other thing. Uh, and it's, it's delightful and it's fully automated. And that was one of the things I wanted to try out because it's very popular with a lot of my clients. So I wanted mm-hmm. to be like my own case study, um, too. So it's a fully automated service where there's really no interaction with the customer, except for the first time when we go on their property for them to show Mm -hmm. us around. Other than that, they book online. It's, it's a monthly service. It's a subscription. We show up, we do our job, we leave. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. (laughs) It's pretty darn cool. That's amazing. But probably the, the most, if if you can make uh, chickens fashionable. If there's anyone who can do that, it'll be definitely, definitely you. My goodness. I'm not going to lie. The branding's pretty stinking cute. And I do yeah. hot pink rain boots as my chicken boots. And yep. it's cute. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's super cute. That's super cute. <laughs> so I want to unpack a couple of things that you were saying earlier. Um, you were talking about how you were reevaluating life as you were there at the hospital with Bradford and uh, Bradford, right? Yeah. Is, that's mm-hmm. yeah, Bradford. And um and I had a similar story or similar sort of, I guess, uh, revelation um, when I was still working in corporate America and looking to, uh, you know, leave that and start my own 
business, the Henley company, you know, you just never know when is that right time? When is that right time? And then uh, friends of ours, dear friends of ours um, found their 15 month old floating in their pool. And, um, and she thankfully by the grace of God, and ironically, her name is grace, um, Rady's children's put her back together and she's beautiful and strong and probably 14 years old now. And, um, but, but I remember going to the hospital and seeing our dear friends, you know, vigil over the bed of, of, of their sweet baby and thinking, I wonder what their, you know, are they standing over her with any regrets in life? Because things, as you know, can change so quickly in an instant. Right. Um, and I just really stood, I, I took that moment of being in grief with, with our friends and just, you know, just trying to just send light and love and heal this baby. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I, if this was my child, would I be standing at the side of the bed regretting that I had never done this thing I wanted to do in terms of being an entrepreneur. And so that was just a really powerful moment for me. And so I think people have to pay attention to those moments. I mean, unfortunately it takes tragedy oftentimes or illness or, or some sort of major life, you know, kind of an abrupt yes, a pause, a disruption. Mm-hmm. Yep. A disruption for people to sort of go, Oh wait, I want to be doing something different or I want, I need to now go down that path. You know, I, I don't know as humans, how we ever get better about not waiting for the disruption to create the action. But, um, but it was very similar as you were saying that I, I was reflecting back to grace and how, um, she was very pivotal in that moment for me. And I was within a few weeks, I, I had given notice, I'd broken up with the wrong boyfriend, you know, all the things like I was making those life changes, much like you were talking about. Um, and that's really how I launched my entrepreneurial journey was because of that, that particular question, because I have a theory on this. When you made all those consecutive changes kind of stacked like that, like you just took full inventory Mm -hmm. and you did it. Do, do you, and I don't want to lead you like a horse to water, but don't you feel like everything then opened up for you the way it was supposed to and definitely easily, not definitely all hard work, but it, Flew. It just, it flowed. There was a flow to it. It wasn't like you were, you were pulling at strings. Everything just right. seemed to be like, oh, you're doing all the right actions. You're living your authentic mm-hmm. life. You're finally stepping into who we wanted you to be. Here's some gifts. Here's some mm-hmm. gifts. Here's some gifts. I swear yep. it flows so much beautiful when you listen and you go right. into gut and you make those movements, even if they're super darn uncomfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it also helps you to just make just like decisions get made easier and quicker because you're in that mode of like, I'm, I'm not going to fret about this anymore. I've done all of that. We've now gotten to the place of action. action. You know, it's like the head and the heart and the gut all finally aligned and said, okay, now we're ready to step forward and be the soldier that you, you know, need us to be. And so, yes, I, I agree with you completely. Once those decisions were made and it was just like the energy, the flow, everything, like you said, it was never easy to be an entrepreneur, but it was easier. Life felt easier. Energy felt easier because I was in alignment with what I was supposed to be doing. I I definitely feel that way. I mean, I can't say that my life has been easy the last two years at all. It hasn't. I mean, I've had everything thrown at me, but despite all that, I'm happy. My kids Mm -hmm. are healthy. My kids are happy. Life is good. It's pandemic. Life is still good. You know, I mean, that's the difference is it's, 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 it's attainable. It's dealable. It's, it's, there's still grace around it and happiness mm-hmm. despite whatever's thrown your way. And in the other sense of the life, things would come at you and it'd, it'd knock you down a little harder mm-hmm. here. It doesn't mm-hmm. really knock me down. It takes me out for a second, but then I, you know, sure. I get through it, you know, mm-hmm. it's just a mm-hmm. total different energy when I think you finally can make that alignment. And I wish, yeah. like we were saying offline, I, I hate that it took me to almost 40 to figure this out. And that's a lot about what's in my book too, is learning yeah. how to connect the mind, heart, and gut, and not be in so much conflict where you're, you know, going back and forth, you know, arguing with your heart and mind and your guts telling you something else, but then you're not following it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but every time I followed my gut, it's always been hundred percent accurate. Yeah. I've never gone, Oh, I shouldn't have listened to my gut. I've never said that. I've never yeah. once in my life said that I've always said, yes. gosh, I should have listened to my gut sooner. Right. 
A hundred percent. I agree with that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So um, you said that you wrote your book in six weeks, which was my experience as well. I'm a big believer that like when the words, the story is there to be told, like it just needs to come out of you. So these people that take, you know, two or three years to write their books, I feel like it's to me, it's like a dabble, right? It's not, it's just like they're dabbling in it, but they're not the story. That means to me that the story is still percolating and it ha- it's not ready to be told. So, so like me, it sounds like you, you know, that it, you, your, your cup was full of story to tell. So um, what was your process for writing? How did you write? Did you dedicate time? Did it just sort of come organically? Um, you know, what was, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So I, again, was very fortunate because at that point, the time that I had to write my book and had given myself to write the book, I didn't have any really other obligations other than being a mom, which Mm -hmm. is a full-time job. Don't get me wrong. But this was the one obligation that gave me purpose outside of my children, Mm -hmm. a mental break, an outlet. And it was my job. That was my Mm -hmm. job was to finish and write this book in this time frame because it was like a huge bucket list check off this is what this time is for of also yeah. to heal my family and my son, but then also I'm going to do this at the same mm-hmm. time in parallel. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do it right. So I actually hired a book coach, um, Kim O'Hare, who is great with a story inside. And um, I would not, not write another book. And I want to write another book without her. I still would use her every time mm-hmm. because I think that's another thing is when you're maybe percolating, or you're telling something very intimate, like I was in your own antidote, sometimes you can get into like your own soapbox, even in writing. Yeah. And yep. it doesn't need to be there. It can be cut, you know, you get you get right. going and some of that doesn't need to be there. So it's nice to have another soundboard that's invested mm-hmm. as much as you and in the process along the way to kind of be like, yeah, this your voice is starting to shift here. You must have been writing this last night when you were emotional. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I was. I was really mm-hmm. pissed off at my ex last night when I wrote this <laughs> chapter. Okay, well, let's let's dial that back because that's not really yeah. your normal tone, you know? Oh, you're right. right. So, you know, and also just the accountability factor of having those, um, I had check-ins with her almost every week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you need, I wanted to produce and I'm a performer, yeah. you're a performer. Again, you have to work with your strengths. So for me, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a student, I'm not type A. So knowing that I had this other person to um, hold myself accountable to mm-hmm. or to not mm-hmm. perform for, but follow the protocol and stay on track. Cause you know, I'm not yep. going to waste their time either. Right. I'm also paying them for their time. So I don't want to waste my money, you know, as a single mm-hmm. mom. So having all those kind of accountability factors I knew would help me have a book at the end of the day that was sellable, ready and everything I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and also not even just that, but having the validation that another person says, yeah, this book is, this is worthy of people reading. You have a really yeah. good book here. I needed that because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we think things are good, but when you do something so intimate as like writing a book that dabbles maybe in like memoir style, mm-hmm. just because it was your life and impactful to you doesn't mean it's going to be that way for readers. Right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. So I found oh. very lovely having um, her insight and her kind of handholding a little bit to just validate that. Yeah. I wish this was here when I got a divorce or I wish I had this. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, also her other, um, client base too would kind of read some chapters once in a while or hear what I was doing, my synopsis. And their feedback was very informative too. So uh, yeah, that was kind of my process. So yeah, I did have dedicated time. I took it seriously and I had a goal that I wanted it done within that six weeks and I made it happen with her. Yeah. I think that's so important. That accountability piece is just crucial. I mean, you know, we're very similar in that way. I I respond much better to a deadline. If I'm given a lot of rope to just sort of sit in my own space, I'm like, what else could I be doing instead of doing this thing? But, um, I would write every week, uh, not at set times. I, I don't, I don't do well in that sort of boundary, but you know, something, an idea would come and I would start writing. And so then every, um, Saturday night, by midnight was my deadline to get those couple of chapters to, to my coach. And then Sunday she would edit. And on every Monday, we would literally have a face-to-face meeting at a coffee shop. She would kind of review what I had written, but it was always a conversation about what was to come. And then it was not about let's edit what you've done, but let's talk about what you'll do. And I think that's a really important piece is just get the words on the page and then you can edit but don't try to edit and write at the same time because that will just make you go insane and you'll never move forward. 
No, that's totally true. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Now that I reflect on it, we didn't edit until the, the first draft was done. Yep. In the editing started, but the first draft was, you're right. What are you going to write mm-hmm. next week? What are you going to write next yep. week? What are you going to write next mm-hmm. week? And actually for me, I don't know about you, but I would be curious to see, I did my best writing at night and I love to sleep and I <laughs> do my best work in the morning. I'm like a morning girl. I'm like New mm. York time. I'm up, got a cup of Joe. Let's get it done by nine o'clock. Yep. I've got half a day. I love right. that. But right. when it came to writing this book, I operated completely different than my normal operating mode. I liked it quiet and dark mm-hmm. and the day done and no distractions of the phone or email. And I would get cozy and I'd sit in my bed and get on my laptop and it would mm-hmm. just pour out of me. Yeah, so that was definitely. Also very interesting that my normal habits of work or right. getting a job done did not apply in this space. That's interesting. I actually kept it quiet too. Nobody knew I was writing a book. And part of me wanted to do it that way because like you, I tell a lot of personal stories, but I didn't want it to be a a reflection of anybody else's like, oh, you know what you should write about, or you know what you should have said, or "Mm, I'm not sure you should say that to tell that story. Um, I just needed it to be 100% authentic. And so even my family, who I'm incredibly close to, didn't know I was writing a book until literally like I had probably two chapters left and then somehow it's somehow it came up in conversation or, you know, something happened. And, and, but for me, it needed to be a very personal experience. Not, I mean, my coach, you know, obviously I had that relationship, but it still needed to be a very personal experience. I needed to really process it and kind of decide on my own what stories wanted to be told and really listen to what stories were telling me they wanted to be told too, which I think is, um, I think is important too. So when does the book come out? What's the title of the book? So that is going to probably be one of my big asks. So the title right now is a working title. It's marriage is easy. Divorce is a bitch. Okay. It's a little edgy. It's a little in your face, mm-hmm. but my content in my book is also a little edgy and it's a little in your face. I yep. definitely call out my reader and I also bring up topics that most people pretty much shy away from, um, mm-hmm. unless they're really backed into a situation where they can't avoid it. But I feel like some of those dialogues need to happen more on the front end of relationships than when you're actually in the trenches with your back up against a wall. So um, the title is fitting for what's coming inside the book. Um, But again, once I find a publisher, which right now I'm shopping, I'd like to Mm -hmm. go the traditional route. So I've had a couple hybrid opportunities, um, but I really for myself. And again, I think it comes back to just my respect for the industry and authors and just my voracious appetite for books. Anyways, I'm a very big reader. I always have been, even as a kid, I really, for me, I really want that traditional publisher. Like it's really important to me. It would mean the world to me. I want that support. I want that backing. I also am a novice. This is not my industry. So I'm looking to somebody that this is their industry. This is what they do to kind of guide me and tell me too what could be improved mm-hmm. or what needs to be changed. So I have not let anyone read it. Read it. Um, I don't have it in circulation. I have it still very much hidden. Um, I haven't released much out of it because yeah. I really want to see once I land um, with a publisher, which hopefully I do. I mean, you never know. There's no guarantees. Yep. Right. <laughs> Um, let's say on my A-list, if I can get my A-list dream, I really want their input and their guidance before I do something that maybe they don't think is the best. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Exactly. So right now it's so, being chopped. Um, okay. and I've had a lot of no's and I've had a couple yeses, um, from hybrid publishers that are still good. And I've had, and one of the yeses was with some modifications and changes, um, which I, totally respect. And I like their input, but I want to wait until the rest of the, the submissions come back and mm-hmm. then weigh it all. And I'm trying to be very tactful about this. I'm also going to have a baby in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So, um, they all say within, you know, six to eight weeks, they'll reply and they've all started coming in a little bit now trickling. So I want to wait till pretty much my whole first phase one of uh, reach out communication kind of comes back, see if there's a common thread that they all say, cause that would mm-hmm. be very noteworthy. Yep. Um, and I'm not above it. I'll change anything. I mean, yep. I don't know this, like I said, this isn't my industry. I've never been an author. I'm looking sure. for feedback. And then from there decipher if I want to make those edits and resubmit or then open it up to like, you know, the hybrid and finding other things. And then obviously if that doesn't work out for some reason, 
I did not write this book to stay on the OneDrive. <laughs> I, you know, I did not do that. So then my, my phase three would be self-publishing, yep. which I'm very confident in because it's just like anything else I do as a startup and an entrepreneur and graphic design, making a cover. And I, you know, I'm fine with that, but I would really love to have that traditional experience. And if I can hold out and be patient and it works for me and I'm one of the lucky ones, I would be very, very grateful. And that's, that would be very ideal for me. That's awesome. Good for you. That's yeah. So, so much love and support and light being shine, shown your way, because that's just, I know I've been where you are. It's been almost five years now, I think, since I've written my book. And I, I just remember that whole journey of the publisher. And I had a publisher tell me I had to change my, I had to write under a, an assumed name because um, the stories I was telling in my book were too personal, even though I had changed names of all the, you know, the guilty and the innocent in the, in the story. And um, so that was a really interesting dialogue between, you know, as a, as a woman, are you willing to give up your name and your voice? No, I wasn't willing to do that. So and we can have a, a whole other conversation about that um, beyond today, yes. but oh yes. yeah, it's interesting. One of the feedbacks I got too was on my title, which I can respect. It has a curse word in it, but it's interesting that there's male authors that have books that literally have the F word all over it that are sold mm-hmm. in the airport. And that's acceptable. Yep. And a woman wants to push the, the envelope with a word mm-hmm. with a, the B word, which is yes. actually what we're called most of the time, right? Yep. If right. A derogatory word and that's an issue you know so it's uh, there's been some things already that have kind of come through that I, I I don't write off I definitely take it as feedback but it's, sure. it's an interesting thought to let percolate for a second yep yep no definitely definitely so let's let's circle back though to because fashion week I know is your your first baby really um and <laughs> your <laughs> yes and your bio refers to runway industry rebel so so what does what does that mean? And, um, and why do you think that fashion week has been so successful in San Diego compared to others that have tried and perhaps failed a similar sort of, um, event? Yeah. So the first question, the fashion industry rebel was because when I came out and said, I was going to do fashion week, San Diego was in 2007, there were no independent fashion weeks then. there was no little city stimulus fashion weeks popping up in every metropolitan city. Those did not exist. There was New York, there was LA, there was Paris, there was Milan, and there was Miami swim and Chicago and Dallas had their, you know, their fashion marts. And sometimes there'd be like some fashion show trunk shows there, but not a fashion week. So this was very renegade and this was a very ballsy. This is like going into major industry, the biggest players as this young little ballsy kid, literally, (laughs) and saying, I'm going to come in and be a systems disruptor. And they all looked at me like, we're going to flick you away like a little flea. Are you kidding me? Right, right. So again, I, I credit my ignorance and age and stamina a lot here. I don't think I would pull that now at all. (laughs) Too much risk factor. And I don't think I'd survive it. Um, But then I was just really ambitious and I believed in what I wanted to see done. And part of the reason was I had worked for the actual real LA Fashion Week um, that was being produced by IMG, which hasn't been produced since 2009-ish. They pulled out of the marketplace, which is another reason I'll get to why Fashion Week San Diego became so successful in its trajectory. But um, I was working for them and there was a lot of things in that industry or how it was constructed that were very much set up so that if you were an emerging brand or designer, you could never pay to play it. You would be priced out before you could even think. So that's why, you know, um, you always see it like New York is our Olympic athletes of the fashion industry. And it's Mm -hmm. meant to be that. And I love that. That's what it's meant to do. But then something like a West Coast Fashion Week, when West Coast is the denim capital of the whole world for denim, should be a little more edgy and progressive and Hollywood and rock and roll and maybe Mm -hmm. open it up a little bit for independent designers. And because New York is what New York is and no one needs to change New York and I don't want to change New York. But at least on the West Coast, there should be some variant of opportunity for emerging brands and creatives, right? So I felt like that was a huge industry deficit and hole and just 
honestly, an overlook, an oversight that needed to be corrected. And it could be age, youth, being progressive, wanting to see change, you know, all those things. Um, But then when IMG announced in 2008, they were pulling out. And that was also our first recession we had in North America in Mm -hmm. my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And for many people's lifetimes, other than our parents in the Great uh, Depression or great grandparents, depending on how old you are, or grandparents, um, that was a really hard time. And they pulled out and said that, West Coast was not a viable market. And I about lost my mind because I had invested my whole career, college, and at that point in the fashion industry. And here is the leading giant that I've been working with that's been helping pay my rent. Tell me Mm -hmm. that this is not viable anymore on the West Coast. So what am I supposed to do now? Uproot and go to New York? Like, I don't want to do that. I'm a Southern California kid, born and raised. I would, if I would have been in New York, I would have already been there with the industry I pick. I don't want to be there. You know, like I've already done that. So I had, I had an opportunity to fill the gap and take my complaints, my observations, my know-how, my guts, my brawn, my hard work, and be a systems disruptor. And I went for it. But that's why for the first, honestly, five to eight years, it was pretty hard mountain climbing, mm-hmm. really hard mountain climbing. And I just stayed professional. I stayed consistent. I stayed on track. I didn't get defeated. I didn't listen to naysayers. I stayed focused and I kept producing results. And I'm a very much a numbers girl. And anyone that, you know, corporate America or anyone that works a normal nine to five that's used to KPIs and SOPs and all these things, numbers don't lie. At the end of the day, the numbers can sell for you and do the talking. So I started Mm -hmm. to really heavily rely on my numbers. I didn't try to do a horse and pony show and song and dance and try to win people over with my words. I would literally just produce the numbers of attendance, money, um, designer success, uh, model success, everything we were producing. And finally people were like, oh, dang, okay, sorry. <laughs> we must have <laughs> underestimated you. Um, yep. We just thought you were another, you know, wannabe, let me be the cool kid, throw an event, be the hot one, make some fast cash. Cause that's why most people unfortunately do get in the fashion industry because you can make a lot of money pretty fast. And, um, especially if you hit the next trending product, boom, instant millionaire. Yeah. But what happens is you get a lot of schmucks that aren't in it to win it, that aren't invested, Mm -hmm. that aren't authentic, that just want to be the cool kid to make fast money. So I think once that kind of faded away and that was very much not clear and people understood I was not that person and my business was not developed that way, then we started opening up the way we were supposed to. Everything got really aligned, but we had to pay our dues pretty hard. I had to pay them pretty hard, I have to say. Yeah. And why did you choose San Diego over LA? LA to me feels like the naively from not being in the industry, yeah. but LA to me feels like the, the safer play, but you purposely brought it to San Diego. I did. Right. Yes. And the reason why is because all my colleagues in LA, cause I was working in LA, even though being geographically located in San Diego this whole time, I've been, I still work in LA, mm-hmm. um, a lot because of my job and contacts, but what have you, but LA is so competitive. And the problem there was everybody, as soon as IMG pulled out, everybody started doing, I mean, I can think of them all right now. I can see their faces in my head, all saying they were going to fill that void. Mm. So it was such a competitive, saturated marketplace. And the problem was, is nobody could ever be what IMG was. You just can't, you can never be what the giant was like, you can go to the carnival, but it's never going to be Disneyland. doesn't mean you're not right. going to have a great experience. doesn't mean it's not going to be fun, but it is not Disneyland. Do you know right. what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I knew that. And also the whole thing was I was trying to showcase a different way to do it. And just being biased, I lived in San Diego. My contacts were here. My stronghold was here. My footprint was here. My reputation was already here. So I would have to start totally at a disadvantage if I went into the LA marketplace. So I felt we would have more, we would have definitely more struggle in San Diego, but we would also have further gains if it did what it was supposed Mm -hmm. to do. And that's exactly what ended up happening. That's awesome. So it was kind of an ambitious gamble, um, but it definitely paid off. Right. And how have you guys had to evolve, obviously, with the pandemic? So no live events, which is one thing you're obviously known for. Um, But how has the virtual landscape helped or hurt that particular event? You know what? It's been a blessing. I'm so, I'm such the worst person to talk. Well, no, I'm not. I'm just, (laughs) 
by nature. I'm like such an optimist by nature. It's crazy. But um, I have to be careful how I say this because it's not right to say it the way I'm about to say it. Off the cuff, I want to say I loved the pandemic, but I do not love that people got sick and lost their lives. So I want to be very clear. Mm -hmm. That is not what I'm talking about. What I love about the pandemic, if you take the disease and the illness and the sickness off the table, take that out of the equation, is it was a reset. It was a reset Mm -hmm. for people. It forced people to break their routine, be in their home, be with their kids, be with their family, be with their job, pivot. And change is hard. Change sucks, but change is sometimes what is needed for people to grow and Mm -hmm. see what they need to do and also see the maybe challenges they had that they were just overlooking by being busy or rushing Mm -hmm. or never being home or never being present with their spouse all the time. So with that, for us, with the business, For us, we always had a strong audience. That's never been a problem. Our fans are everything to us. We have ticket holders that have come since day one to this day. I mean, we are so fortunate that people have us on their calendar of their year of events, right? Mm -hmm. So when we had to stop Spring Showcase, all pre-events, we were at this kind of moment in time where do do, do we do our October show? Do we not? And I said, we have to, we made the commitment to these designers, these sponsors, it's not fair to them. We have to pivot. So in the 11th hour, not really, but it felt like it two months out, which is the 11th hour in event land, you know, this, right. Right. Um, We ended up hiring on top of our normal production crew that we in-house have more support to make it like a live Emmys or Oscars broadcasted private server, private link, like legit, not, not some rinky dink. And everyone was like, we don't need to go at this level. I said, no, we do, because here's the deal. We are the first fashion week. And we were, New York didn't do this. Milan did. Paris did not. We went fully live and virtual, but we did it at a high level. And did we have to go that high level? No. I mean, we had multiple camera angles. We had a huge switcher. I was on command saying camera two, camera one. It was so fun, actually. It was really fun fun to try to change it up. But we came out of the gate really high and really professional because I just felt like this might be something we're doing for the next couple of years. And I want to, again, dominate that space and know Mm -hmm. how to do it the right way. Not just this, like, let's make it work. Zoom link, try to piece it together because that's not sustainable. That's not professional. And that's not the quality of events that we're known for. And even if it's virtual or in person, there's a certain bar of excellence that our consumer and our network expects. And I want to deliver it. So I was in meetings with Gwen, our new director and our team. And I said, you know, I would just be happy if we sold 50 tickets to this virtual event, because let's be real. A whole thing about a fashion week is attending a fashion week, like the fun part, front row, red carpet, you know, seeing the fashion in person, you know, having that experience. We ended up selling 650 plus tickets. Oh my gosh. I could not believe it. I say it now and my heart like wells up. Like I get emotional and yes, I'm very pregnant, but I get emotional (laughs) because I swear to God, people did not need to do that. I mean, like I said, I would have been elated if we sold 50 because this is not our business model. Mm-hmm. The fact that we did 650 plus was incredible to me. On top of it, what we found, which is a huge oversight of me and, uh, and my business role, and I can't believe I never paid attention to it until now, but again, thank you, pandemic. Another, if we had to pick mm-hmm. something positive mm-hmm. that came from it, it really had us reevaluate our reach. And Yes, we are geographically located in San Diego, but we've been showing designers from all around the world since day one. Well, why didn't we have a virtual presence? Mm -hmm. All those designers and their fans and their family that couldn't fly to San Diego, they now had access to watch these events and reconnect with us. Models that weren't in San Diego that now are based in New York could reconnect with us. Mm -hmm. So our viewership was huge. And I couldn't believe it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a grave oversight that we have not as an event producer been able to play to the global marketplace with our event because we play to the global marketplace and PR, designers, social media, email blasts, but not actually the event. What an oversight, right? Like, So now moving forward, um, 
this year, we are able to do our spring showcase signature kickoff event, which is next week, which is huge. And it will be a hybrid. So that one, we only had, um, we decided only to do 40 tickets to keep it very intimate, lots of social Mm -hmm. distancing, super safe, several checkpoints. I mean, it's, it's the bare minimum. Like we we're we're just pulsing it a little bit to see how we all feel in our team and everything. Um, but it's a free live event. Our spring showcase is going to be free. It's going to be broadcast on Facebook live and Instagram live. Then New York, we actually have our event that was supposed to happen last year at Sotheby's, which was virtual and was phenomenal for our SEO and international viewers finding out about our brand. So that was a blessing too. Um, that would have never happened if that would have been live this year. It's actually live. So in July, we will be in Manhattan with our designers, which is huge at Sotheby's gallery. And there we will broadcast again for free on Instagram and Facebook. But then in October, we will do exactly what we did last year. The big production, the private link where people can elect to buy a virtual pass or a ticket and sit in the audience, Mm -hmm. depending on their comfort level. And again, it's completely your comfort level and there's no judgment there whatsoever, but at least you have the option. And I don't foresee us, honestly, Nicole, um, moving away from this hybrid style ever Mm -hmm. again. I see us always having kind of that dual option for attendees to either be in person or watch virtually. Yeah. I think that's so smart. I really do think that that's where we're headed. You know, people are so anxious to say like, well, let's all get back into, um, you know, in the same room together, right. Because we've missed that. But from a business standpoint, you're missing a huge opportunity for a bigger market when you keep it that intimate, you know, in sort of within one space. And so I've found that with other programming that I'm involved in, you know, taking it virtual has been a huge, we've doubled attendance for a program that I do because now we have, there's no boundary on where right? we can it's amazing. reach. Mm-hmm. It's almost yeah, it's really like, powerful. why didn't we all do, why didn't we all do this? Yeah. So again, this is why I say there's so many positive things that if you can really look at what this was for everybody, it was a great reset on our personal lives and on our business lives and our careers. And I think people yeah. also like I talked to so many of my friends that are still in corporate America and they're like, there's no way I could ever go back to my nine to five, five days a right. week. Just no right. way. They've been home with my kids and working from home. Like I'm more productive. My kids are happier. I'm happier. I'm not burnt out. So I know this is going to be a major, um, reformulation of mm-hmm. what the work week looks like. Even if everything did open up and go back to somewhat normal, it will never go back to what it was. No, it's I never, agree. Well, it can't after this sustained change. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that I'm completely. And, and, and I think people have to be careful of, you know, they're just so anxious to get back to normal, but what parts of that normal are you most interested in getting back to? So that's one of the pandemic lessons I think is that we really have to evaluate on, you know, I think if, if you came through the pandemic, you better know that the people you live with are the people you want to live with or don't want to live with. Right. Yeah. The job that you're doing is the job you want to be doing, or it's not the job you want to be doing. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I agree too. I think the pandemic has given us time and space to have, to have those reflections on, is this the person I want to be involved with? Is this the company and the work I want to be doing? And if you didn't take the joy of, or the time that we've been given and try to reevaluate those things in your life. then it's like, I'm not, you know, I don't know what to do when or else, like, hopefully we'll never have to go through something like this, but whenever, when else will we ever have this sort of gift of time to do those sort of reflections? And so I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. You know, and that's why I wrote my book in my gift of time. I didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. I kind of got a double dip. I I took my time and I, and then I was starting to, you know, it's funny here. This is like, this is a little humor, a little levity here. Not funny, obviously nothing's funny about people losing lives, but what was a little humorous to me was I was starting to get a little FOMO in my year and a half off writing this book, being kind of isolated with my kids and my oasis mm-hmm. and feeling, uh, cause I was starting to feel good again. And when you feel good, yeah. you want to be social. You want to, you, you know, you start looking at what other people are doing. You see events, you get invited to things. And then you start to kind of be like, Oh, I kind of want to go, but Oh, I don't really want to yeah. go. Well then the pandemic hit and everything was shut down again. So I was like, right. Oh, great. Perfect. I'm gonna go right back to writing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Everybody's now just on my page. Right. They, we just all, we all caught up with you. We all caught up with you. Sorry. You had already. Sorry. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I know, um, that you love women, women, entrepreneurs, women's energy. I know you're just such a great champion for women in general. So let's talk a little bit about 
just being a woman in business and do you have any best advice or, or are things that, you know, now that you wish as that young, you know, rebel coming, you know, starting and trying to disrupt an industry, you know, what, what, what are the lessons that you can convey to somebody who perhaps is, you know, 10 years younger than you? I would just, you know, I'm actually really happy for them. I feel like not to toot our generation's horn or Mm -hmm. the generations prior to us, but we did a lot of heavy lifting and we took a bunch of shit. And, mm-hmm. and now this younger generation is, is so progressive and so cool. Like I see girls that come now, you know, interning at fashion week and they're so authentic to themselves. I don't know how to explain it. They're so authentic to their true self yeah. and you can tell they're not trying to fit a mold or they're not trying to project something or look away that they think will get them in the door or get them ahead or gain more favorableness because they look a certain way or act a certain Mm -hmm. way at the job. And I just think, wow, like it's something so simple as that, but that is so powerful because when I started, I had to look a certain way to close business. I had to look a certain way. There is no question about it. If I showed up wearing what I actually wanted to wear with no makeup and my hair not done because I was Mm -hmm. busy with my kids, I would have never got to where I was today. Never. And I hate that I have to say that. I hate that I have to admit that. But that was the reality. And there were no women writing lean in or um, how to do business or networking groups with women. None of that existed. Um, If anything, women were put against each other on purpose so that we Mm -hmm. couldn't talk and collaborate. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it was like we literally got pinned against each other to be on teams because there's only space for one. It's ridiculous. So when I was coming up, I mean, I was closing, I was in my twenties, which is scary. And I was closing men in their like forties, fifties, because they were all corporate guys that ran the books or were the decision makers. Now, It's incredible. Most of these women we're calling that are the decision makers for these Fortune 500 companies, they're women. They're not the men. They're actually Mm -hmm. women in these power positions. It's phenomenal. And it's a totally different conversation. It's a totally different experience. It's a total different way to do business and relationship building. And not to be biased, which I already am very clearly, but I feel like it's also more sustainable. It's smarter. Mm -hmm. And there's better ROI in the long term with these partnerships of women coming together, mm-hmm. then maybe the male counterpart. And, and again, it could be my industry, but again, my industry, even though it's fashion, we're selling visibility. We're like a, we're like a magazine, essentially. We're selling ad space, right? Think yep. of it that way. And the companies we're reaching out to aren't necessarily fashion business. They just mm-hmm. want eyes. They just want exposure. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm talking just to women who love fashion. That would be right. kind of a given. It's usually not. It's usually women in positions that maybe have an affinity for fashion or would like to attend an event like that, but their company and their business has nothing to do with that. Right. Um, but I would say, you know, I'm just really excited for the next up and coming generation of women in business. I'm excited for my daughter. I feel like, I feel like she's going to have an easier go of it. I feel like she's going to be taken more seriously than I was taken before even five years ago. You know what I yeah. mean? From the gate, right yeah, out of the right. gate. Um, right. The stuff I experienced it, some of the stories I have, she'll never experience that. And I'm mm-hmm. thrilled. I'm happy mm-hmm. for that. I don't want her to deal with that. Right. So I, I don't know if I have advice other than um, just keep doing what everybody's doing. It seems to be going in the right direction. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think also just, you know, the, this thing called the internet, this new toy we have right now. <laughs> I was just about it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's going to be a fad or not. <clears throat> excuse me. But um, I was just talking the other day about, <clears throat> excuse me, about having to look through the yellow pages for my first internship and <laughs> making a connection that way. <clears throat> and then how, you know, just the joys of LinkedIn and all of those things that they have now, these, these tools that are available. Incredible. You know, if anything, it might be that it's now too competitive or the access is too <clears throat> easy that now the, com- the competitiveness might get a little intense. I would like to see if I could add my two cents. I would <clears throat> like to see the fashion blogger, the outfit of the day, the, aren't Mm -hmm. I so pretty? I would like to see that move away. I would like to see that trend go. I want content. I want brains. I want brains and beauty. I want something that actually gives something than other, aren't I pretty? Give me a like. I don't don't want to see that anymore. So that would be one trend that I would definitely in the internet space like to see that go. I don't mind um, 
obviously I'm in the fashion industry. I like fashion bloggers. They attend mm-hmm. our events. They talk about our events. They're very important, but I'd like to see some substantial, substantial content in, yeah. in relation to that. Not right. just like, do you like how I look? Aren't I pretty now buy it? Right. Right. Yep. I agree completely. And I, and I think also, you know, that's a point well taken about kind of the power of social media and understanding how social media is used as a business tool and not just how many followers can I get for the sake of followers, you know, really understanding, you know, the important, the, the metrics and the analytics behind all of that. But, but also I think your point about, you know, women, the, you know, going back to this, the, the thing called the internet, it now levels the playing field because we no longer have to be the woman who sort of has the question around the boardroom table that we're like, well, I don't want to answer, ask this question because it's probably the dumb question. I mean, now you can Google anything. Now you can search anything. And so we're, we should be coming to the table so much better prepared because we have the access to information like we've never had it before, you know? And so you feel like when you're sitting at the, when you're sitting at the table, you should be armed just as much as everybody else, all the men around the table, because you have this incredible gift of, if I don't know something, I'm just going to Google it, right? I'm going to figure this thing out or, or gosh, I had no idea what they were talking about. I'm going to go back to my office and kind of do a deep dive into that. So the next time I'm in a meeting, I don't have to say, sorry, I didn't really understand that. Could you guys explain that to me? Instead, I've got this incredible tool, right? So we're so lucky, right? We're so lucky that we're living in this world of, you know, information is just so available to us because it's literally leveling the playing field. hundred percent. You just cracked me up. I was actually reflecting when you're saying all this, I remember having to write out on a scrap piece of paper, the map quest directions to some of my clients' businesses because I didn't have enough money for the printer and the computer paper. And I wanted to save that for proposals that I would have to print out and then bring to them in the little binder I made with my logo on it. I mean, now it's the PDF, like it's nobody's business. Oh, here's a DocuSign. (laughs) Oh, here, upload your document to my base camp. I mean, it's like, and then I I literally am reflecting on like finding like a janky piece of like scratch paper from like, you know, a realtor or something that gets left on yep. your porch, on your car right. like random paper, right. and like writing out, okay, go right on this one. Go left on yes. this one. Oh my God. Now you just put in your phone and it tells you where to go. I know it's, it is, it's amazing. We're so lucky to be living in, in this generation. So, all right, well, you and I can talk for a thousand hours, but we should wrap this up because it's just been incredible. And we definitely need a part two after baby comes and, and we can hear about all of that great adventure. So we always end with our rapid fire questions. Um, and so, um, we're going to just, we're going to end this way. So like I, like I told you before, whatever comes to the top of your mind, no judgment. We just want rapid fire. okay? Okay. Question number one, title of your lifetime movie. Controlled chaos. Love it. If you could change places with any celebrity right this minute, who would it be? Ooh. God. Um, geez. Queen Elizabeth. Love it. Okay. When do you feel happiest? My backyard with my kids in the mm-hmm. sun. Love it. If you were running for politics, what would be your biggest campaign promise? Women's rights, mm-hmm. maternity rights birth control, women's health issues, hundred percent. Okay. Ultimate dinner party, which four guests do you invite and why? Ooh, Elon Musk, because he just would be a freak and it'd be hilarious to hear what he's got to say because he's (laughs) wild, out of control. Um, To balance it out, I'd probably throw like a Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. I would do an Oprah. Okay. And then I would probably invite Trump just because I want to sit down and see what this would be like. I'm all about, again, controlled chaos. I want it diverse. I want it all. I want a black woman. I want Trump. I want Elon Musk. And I want an old school dude. I want to hear it all. I want to see I what love it. Party. Could you imagine all of us after one drink? What would happen? Oh, oh my, my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that would be incredible. Yes. Ooh, good for you. Wild. Right. Okay. Right this minute, you have to get a tattoo. What do you get and why? A B for okay. my kids. My B's. Yep. Um, biggest pet peeve in business. glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. Okay. What is your wish for the next generation? True equality. Yep. And when does your light shine the brightest? When I'm talking about something I'm passionate about. Yeah, definitely. All right. So last question, what is your big ask either personal or professional right this minute and how can we help you? 
Oh, my big ask would definitely be as a novice author and a new author is um, any referrals for publishers, hybrid publishers, anyone who's even self-published. I know nothing. I don't pretend to know anything. If you have tips, <laughs> struggles, anything you'd share along the way that I can avoid, I would love it. Even even referrals. Be- referrals are the best thing. Perfect. Okay, great. And then what's the best way for us to reach you? You can always email me. I have an open email. It's uh, info at allisonandrews.com. Perfect. Okay. And social, how do we find you on social? My handle on everything is Allison Andrews. And it's perfect. 2009. Yep. That's perfect. Good for you for getting that. That's a nice, easy, clean one. Yeah. <laughs> Allison Andrews, perfect. Real That's estate. Perfect. Real estate. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. So very good. Well, Allison, thank you so much for saying yes to my big ask for you to be a guest on the Big Ask Podcast. I've loved this conversation. I love seeing you and your light shining so bright and continue to do amazing work in the world. And thanks for giving the world uh, beautiful babies. Oh, thank you. Yes. Humans. I'm lucky they chose me. <laughs> yes, definitely. So all the best to you, Allison. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Ass Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe to and share the podcast with your friends. And be sure to connect with me on social at Miss Nicole Matthews or at Big Ass Podcast. Until next time, let today be the day you make a big ask.